Good morning, friends. I want to say welcome once again to our online worship time here at Vernonia Church. My name is Sam. I'm the pastor here at Vernonia Church, and I'm so glad that I have the chance to share with you today. We're going to be diving into our series where we're talking about Esther and living a life in exile. And this morning, we're going to have a teaching about living a life with more of an eternal perspective, and it's going to be a great day. Hey, before we begin, uh, just like usual, I want to ask you to do all the things that help us as we try to grow our outreach, as we try to grow in, in, in our impact and who we're reaching out to. Would you please, it wouldn't take much for you to just make sure you're hitting a like and a subscribe, a thumbs up, whether you're hitting the sub notification bell so that you can be alerted about new messages as they come out or as they're posted. Uh, make sure that you're subscribing to our YouTube channel. Just do all that stuff uh, that, that helps us grow. I also want to encourage you, make sure that you share this message with somebody. If, if you have something in this message that's an encouragement to you, that that's a blessing to you that helps you in your walk. Maybe you would share it uh, with someone else that you can help. That way you can uh, let us help you be a blessing to the people in your life. Well, all that stuff out of the way, I want to just really encourage you today. I want to dive into the word together today. And before we do that, I want to pray for you and pray for us as we dive into this lesson today. Uh, let's pray together. Father in heaven, we come before you and we just ask that you bless this time that we dive dive into your word together. God, I pray that you will encourage us, that you will move in our life, that you will lift us up and help us to walk closer with you because of what we talk about today. And God, I know that so often it's, it's so easy to have a worldly perspective, to have a perspective that just looks at what's going on around us, that that is uh, enticed by all the things going around on, uh, in our life. Uh, and, and God, it's so easy to forget that there's a bigger picture to everything in this world, to everything going on in our life. There's a bigger picture. And at the end of it all, when we walk with you, there's heaven, there's eternal life. And God, uh, I pray that you will help us to figure out as we live in a broken, uh, upside down world, how we can live for you, how we can live for eternity over living for the things of this world. Well, it's in Jesus name we pray. Everybody said together, Amen. <laughs> well, I want to dive into our teaching, and we're going to talk about caring more about eternal life this morning. You know, one of the things that we've talked about all through this teaching, there's been a, a verse that's sort of been the memory verse that I've encouraged everyone to memorize. It's John chapter 15, verse 19, where Jesus said, the, uh, the, the world would love you as one of its own if you belonged to it. But you are no longer part of this world. I chose you to come out of this world, and so it hates you. In other words, Jesus has chosen us to come up out of this world, to live differently in this world. To He has called us from the kingdoms of this world into his kingdom. And there's a part of that where sometimes we need a reminder that instead of living for this world, that, uh, th that we should be living for a different world, for, an, uh, for a more eternal world, for a world that we've been called to be a part of. And you have been called to be a part 
of God's world, a part of God's kingdom. You've been called to be a part of something bigger, something that lasts longer, something immortal. You've been called to eternal life. And you know, some of the things about this world that we need a reminder of are, are that this world is temporary. This world has things that don't last. This world is a world where there's suffering, but we're living for a world where one day there will be no suffering. And in this world, there's hardship. In this world, there's wars. In this world, there's hatred of the things of God. There's hatred of goodness. There's hatred for the people of God. In this world, uh, we're living in a world where we have enemies who are against us. I'd like to tell you a story that I, I heard this uh, th this week. It's a story that I got when I was talking with, uh, well, well, I got it while I was talking with one of our missionaries from who works with and coordinates with a bunch of missions that we work with and support in the Ukraine. Uh, and, and the story that came this week was a story of this fella and his wife. I'm not going to use names today when I talk about the Ukraine uh, because I don't want to get make it harder for anybody. Uh, but this fellow and his wife, they started a ministry for people, a rehabilitation ministry, rehabilitation from drugs and alcohol. And out of that ministry came a, a new church that they were able to start with people who were who were going through that ministry and through their work a lot of people came to Christ a lot of people uh, have 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 come to this church and their community and this fellow this, this fellow and his wife they live in a, a community where if you almost pictured a roundabout like you, you drive into a roundabout and there's houses all around that roundabout a cul-de-sac if you will and uh, and and if you picture living in a cul-de-sac with duplexes all around. That's sort of the deal that they live in. And living there, they have a spot where they always park their car. Well, we've been hearing lots of bad things coming out of Ukraine. And, and this couple has been doing ministry and had been doing ministry in Kharkiv, the, one of the first cities to get attacked in this war in the Ukraine. Well, they're in their cul-de-sac and they just so happened to not park their car where they usually park it. And, and on this particular day, a missile hit the very spot where they park their car. And uh, the, the missile, by the time it hit the ground, only was showing about three feet of the back of the missile. Now, there's a miraculous thing that was happening here. There, there's several just amazing things that were happening here. You know, they've been asking people to pray, and they've been praying, and people here have been praying for them. And uh, they said, you know, we just want to praise God, because for one, that missile was a dud. It did not blow up. If it blew up, it would have blown up that whole community and killed lots of innocent people, and it didn't blow up. And not only that, but their car wasn't parked there, so the missile didn't hit their car. And not only that, uh, but the missile, it ended up hitting a water line, which was bad. It had to be fixed, but it missed a gas line by like a foot. And if it was just a foot 
over, it would have caused a great explosion, which also probably would have wiped out the entire community, the entire block. I mean, there were a lot of things to be grateful for here and a lot of things to praise God for here. And so when the, when the authorities came by and they took that missile out, that thing was 10 feet long. So I call this the story of the 10 foot long missile that couldn't beat God. You know, I know there's a lot of horrible things happening. There are a lot of hardships. There are a lot of people who are dying and I don't want to take away from that. But here we have this family that's saying, we just want to praise God in the midst of all the ugliness going on around us. God is still at work. His unseen hand is still at work. His unseen hand is moving and, and working and helping as we're going through this trial and this trouble. And one of the things that's been on my heart as we've been thinking about what's going on in the world around us today with, with Ukraine and with the war in Ukraine is, is our brothers and sisters in Christ. I mean, we support as a church, as a ministry, we support a group called Overseas Outreach. Uh, it's led by uh, a great guy named Rick Dayton out of Idaho. And, and Rick has been here to Vernonia Church and Rick connects with all kinds of ministries over in Ukraine. And, and we've been working with different people. And I just wanna encourage you, be thinking about and praying for our, our missionaries, our brothers and sisters in Christ. Last week, I, I had one day where I just spent the day talking with Rick, saying, okay, what about these folks, and what about these folks, and where's these missionaries? And, and most of what I was told, you know, most of our people that we've been working with and supporting have been uh, taken care of. We talked about some, some people who are involved in creation science and, and in, in spreading the message of our Creator God in the city of Kiev, and most of the them who we worked with have either gone to Poland or gone to western Ukraine where there's not a lot of fighting going on and it's relatively safer right now. I talked with our uh, with Rick about our friends who were working with the orphanage in central Ukraine where well they were working with the organization that works with orphans the state-run orphanages in Ukraine and, and that house that we've been supporting and that family that we've been supporting uh, the American Americans who run it have come back to the U.S. They were forced to leave, but there are Ukrainians still there running everything, keeping it all going, and that house has become now used by God uh, to help out refugees and people fleeing because it's a relatively safe place for the time being, and they're, they're using a lot of the supplies and a lot of the things that they have and even the connections that they have to funnel uh, resources and funnel ministry opportunities and funnel help help through the place that once only worked with the orphans, but now they're working with everyone in need. And actually, if I was going to encourage you, if you wanted to support financially any organization when it comes to what's happening in Ukraine, one thing you can know is supporting through overseas outreach, going through that hub of that place that's reaching out, even outside of Ukraine to refugees, would probably be one of the best ways to see your money 
money go farther than, uh, than any other organization because most of it's going to reach the people who are in need without a lot of overhead. And so uh, if, if you're interested in that, you can uh, message us and we'll help connect you with overseas outreach that you can give uh, or you can give to Vernonia Church and, and just specify that you want it to go there and, and you can do that online at any time. We'll talk about giving at the end of the service today and I'll try to remember to mention that. But that's not what I'm getting at. What I'm getting at is God has been taking care of these people. Some of them have fled their homes. Uh, we, we I talked with about our friends in Odessa and the kids at the Christian school we worked with and, and colleges and English classes and, and, and God has been taking care of them. Some of them are in deep in into this. They're, they're fighting and they're, uh, you know, they're, they're going to other parts of the country to support their country. Others were American missionaries who've come home and one, one posted pictures of an explosion in Odessa right by the church that they started. And, uh, you know, I can't imagine what that would be like to have all that kind of stuff going on around us. You know, we have the luxury of, of right now being safe in our churches and worshiping together and safe at our homes. But that's not what's happening in Ukraine right now, even in the church. I asked about our friends in Kharkiv and, uh, and, and like I said, that's where the story of the 10 foot missile happened. I had a, a guy that I really liked a lot when I went to Ukraine and, and visited with all these folks. And, and that one fellow had three young kids and, and a wife and they fled to Austria. They, they, they fled to Western Ukraine, but he was conscripted and called back to fight for uh, his country. And when he came and, and arrived, they told him, well, because he had three young kids, they would let him go be with his family, but to be ready to be conscripted and called back at, at a moment's notice. And so that's sort of where he's at. He's in this place of readiness. And, and as a pastor, he may be end, up, uh, end up being called to serve in a whole other way. And uh, and how much life has changed and how much the world has changed uh, just in, in in a month, you know, and we're reminded that we live in a world that's broken. We, we live in a world that uh, that is filled with people who have hatred, who have a, a, a desire for power, who are drawn to it. And we live in a world where the likes of one of the characters, actually two of the characters in the book of Esther, are, we actually have like a real life uh, opportunity to see Esther come alive in a way. I mean, we when we when we've read this book of Esther, we've gotten to know King Xerxes, and we've gotten to know this guy named Haman, and and both of them really seem to be personified in kind of what Putin is doing and what Putin is like. And and, and even though Putin is doing what he's doing, there are still people who are saying, "Praise God!" Because a ten-foot missile didn't blow up, a, a gas line didn't get hit our car didn't get hit and and our community is still here we're still alive at least and and how God is still at work even in the midst of a broken place but one of the things that makes people in times like this hold on to their faith is that they know that there is a there's a more eternal picture behind the temporary picture. There's a more eternal world behind the temporary world. And that's one of the things that I think 
helped Esther kind of grow into a stronger faith. And that's one of the things that I think will help us grow into a stronger faith. You know, we've been reading through this book of Esther, getting to know this book, getting to know these people in this story. And and if we were going to catch up really quick, just catching up to chapter, uh, the end of chapter six, where we are, we've been, we've spent six, uh, six chapters we've studied through this book of Esther. And, and we've seen this woman who becomes the new wife to King Xerxes of Persia. He's sort of a drunken, powerful, unpredictable, and out of control Persian uh, king. And uh, his wife said no to his lustful request, and he divorced her, and he banished her, and he replaced her with Esther, who is secretly a Hebrew, who's secretly a Jew who worships God. And and then the king's right-hand man, his name is Haman, and he's simply an awful person. And, uh, and and he loves power. He loves self-promotion. He loves attention. He loves fame. He's sort of a, all about self-glory. He wants everyone in his empire to bow down to him and to, uh, and he wants to make the law of the land such that everyone has to bow down to him. I mean, this is why I say he sounds a lot like Putin today. Everybody does bow down to him. They follow the law except for one man named Mordecai. Now, Mordecai is Esther's older cousin who raised her, and he also has been secretly a Jew, but because he wouldn't bow, he was forced to make a decision. Is he going to stand as a Hebrew, as a worshiper, of God who won't worship and bow down to anyone else and be outed? Or is he going to go ahead and and, uh, do what he's being told to do? Well, he decides to out himself. He refuses to bow because he worships only God. Uh, He's Jewish, won't bow down and worship to any man. And Haman loses control. He becomes filled with fury. He comes up with a plot not only to kill Mordecai, but to kill all the Jewish people in the land of Persia, all of God's people. People are 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 in his mind worthy to die because of what Mordecai has done uh, to disobey him. Well, Esther finds out about it, and she is one of God's people, and she is in a unique position to do something about this. Uh, up till now, she's been married to the king uh, for about five years, and he has no clue who she really is. I really think there was a level of unfaithfulness on Esther's part. There was a level of disobedience when it comes to her and her faith and her walk with God. She hasn't been worshiping God. She hasn't been going to worship God. She hasn't been studying the scriptures or obeying them. At least it looks like she hasn't. She hasn't been tithing. She hasn't been going to public prayers or at the synagogue. She hasn't been meeting with God's people, singing his praises. She isn't going to church. You know, she's one of those who would say something silly like, well, I'm keeping it private. I'm keeping it to myself. I'm reading my Bible by myself, you know, and and, and my faith is just a private thing. Well, like them, she's doing that. And, and the truth is, maybe she did. And I think she did have some level of faith, but she wasn't really practicing it. No one in her life, including her husband of five years, had a clue that she was Jewish. She kept it so personal and so private that it was probably one of the best kept secrets of the kingdom and one of the best kept secrets in her house. Well, 
Uh, before we go much farther, I-, I want to talk with you about a couple of mistakes I think people make today. One of them is the mistake that, th- that Esther made. One of them is this, that they try to have a personal faith without a public faith. We try what Esther tried, and we, we try, we say, well, it's a personal thing. I, I don't necessarily want to put it out there. I, I don't want it to come between us, so I'm not going to talk to you about it. And, and I don't need to go to church. That's all just public stuff. I, I just I have a private faith. And that's one direction some followers of Jesus try to go. It's one that seems to be sort of pop Christian subculture today to talk about how I have a private faith. I I just don't have a public faith. Well, James in the Bible will teach us that really that kind of practicing of faith is what he would call worthless faith. It's ineffective faith. It's unuseful faith. It's unhelpful faith. He calls it amounting to nothing faith. It's kind of like not having faith at all. He will say faith without works is dead. And basically what that means is when you try to say I have a private faith but you don't do anything publicly in faith then it's like you're dead. You're spiritually dead. It's like you don't have faith at all. So it's a mistake to try to go with personal faith without public faith. And Esther's going to learn that, and God is going to sort of push her over the edge. She's going to grow. She's going to become stronger, and she's going to realize that God wants her not only to have personal faith, but to also have public faith. Well, another direction sometimes people will try is is they'll try to have public faith without a personal faith. And this faith, we could say, is the way of the legalist. I mean, this person thinks about, uh, well, I I attend church publicly. I I go through some motions publicly. and, And it really amounts to that. It's a whole lot of going through the motions. But really, there's not a personal faith there. There's not a personal prayer happening throughout the week. There's not personal Bible reading that's happening. There's a lot lack of actually walking with God and and serving God and and doing things for God. Uh, It's all for show. It's all a a public faith without a personal faith. And and the scriptures will tell us that that's the way of legalism, because legalism is basically where you think, if I go through some motions, then I can strong harm God into doing what what he should do for me. And, And the whole idea is also the way of a hypocrite. It's someone who does something on the outside, but on the inside, they're a whole different person. Instead, what I would encourage you to do is what the Bible would encourage you to do, and it's to say, I'm going to make sure I have both a personal faith and a public faith. I'm going to have a personal relationship with God because he does want me to have a personal relationship with him, but he also wants me to do the things that we do in public worship 
of him. I should be, uh, you know, attending my church because Sunday matters and and Sunday worship matters. I, I should be giving. I should be serving others in Jesus' name. I should be uh, doing the things that faith would move me to do. And so I should be doing those publicly, but all the while d- doing them because they're the fruits of a deep personal relationship with God. Well, Esther is going to be moved to start thinking outside of herself, which is often what the public side of our faith does. The personal side, it's all inward. It's all, it's all personal growth. It's all thinking inwardly about myself. The, the public faith part is where we let what God is putting into us overflow out of us into our lives and into the lives of others. Well, that's where God's going to bring her. I think God put her in the place and in the time where she was to do something outside of herself to save people. But, but what happens uh, it will also save her too, so it benefits her as well. But God brings her to the place where she realizes, like James, that faith without action is dead and worthless. Real faith should always ask a question, what should I do? I, I love that line in Acts chapter 2, verse 37 and 38, where the people who are listening to the apostles preach the gospel for the first time. They, they hear what was said and they're cut to the heart by what was said and they ask a question. And this is a question that people, when they first have faith, should always ask. And even after we first have faith, as we live out our faith, we should continue to ask. And it's this, what should I do with what, with what God's putting on my heart? What should I do when I have personal faith? Now, the apostles are going to tell them to go through some of the starting motions of faith, some of the starting results of faith, repent and be baptized. And and they're going to talk to them about those beginning things. But it doesn't stop there. Once we've done those things, we continue to ask, God, what should I do? And here Esther has asked God, what should I do? And, And she's fasted. She's prayed. She has asked other people to fast and pray and God has been moving. God has been setting the stage. God has been moving with an unseen hand, kind of like the 10-foot missile that that landed and the car was gone. The missile didn't blow up and the gas line didn't get hit. I mean, kind of like that. God's hand was at work, but it was unseen. Mordecai, uh, his life was in danger. Haman was going to try to kill him. And uh, and put him on a 75-foot pole before he before he had lunch with the queen and the king. And, and, and instead what happened was God made the king have a dream. And, and he realized he never, or sorry, God made the king not be able to sleep. He didn't have a dream. He was not able to sleep. And so he had his, his records read to him. And he realized that he never thanked Mordecai for saving his life. And so instead of being killed on a 75-foot pole that Haman had already put, had put up and prepared for him, uh, well, Haman had to parade him around and praise him and tell everybody that the king loved him and was thankful for him. And, and now we're going to see that uh, 
after that, we come to Acts, or Esther chapter 6, and, and we're going to finish up the last line in chapter 6, move into chapter 7, and we get here. We're at the banquet. Haman is there, and, and, uh, and the king is there, and, and finally she says, I'm going to tell you what this is all about. And so let's begin. In Esther chapter 6, verse 14, it says this, While they were still talking, the king's eunuchs arrived and quickly took Haman to the banquet Esther had prepared. And so the king and Haman went to Queen Esther's banquet. On this second occasion, this was this this was the second of, of banquets that he invited, she invited them to, and she did tell them that she was going to tell the king what this was all about. But while they were drinking wine, something the king loved to do, uh, the king again said to Esther, Tell me what you want, Queen Esther. What is your request. I will give it to you even if it's up to half of my kingdom. Well, Queen Esther replied, if I have found favor with the king and if it pleases the king to grant my request, I ask that my life and the lives of my people be spared. Well, this should have, would have sent the king into a confusion because until now, he has no clue who she's talking about. He doesn't know who her people are. He doesn't know what's going on here. And he doesn't even know the danger they're in. And then she says, for my people and I have been sold to those who would kill, slaughter, and annihilate us. If we had been merely sold as slaves, I could remain quiet, for that would be too trivial a matter to warrant disturbing the king. Who would do such a thing? King Xerxes demanded. Who would be so presumptuous as to touch you? You're the queen. Who would do that? Well, he still doesn't understand what's happening here or who she is or who, who, or, who her people are and what's going on. He hasn't connected the dots yet that Haman, because of his hatred for Mordecai, bribed him to issue a decree that all the Jews in the land should be killed. And there's an interesting thing that Esther does here. She points the, out that Haman did it, all the while knowing that Haman couldn't have done it without the authority, without the approval, and without the edict that her own husband issued and put out there. Uh, and, and so he says, who would be presumptuous to do that? Who would do something like that? And Esther replied, the wicked Haman, this man, this wicked Haman is our adversary and and our enemy. And so it's worth noting here that the king was actually the one that issued the decree. And so by, by virtue of, of supporting Haman, she or he has put her in danger. He is actually the enemy. And, and the king at this moment, he finally realizes what happened, what's happening. This is sort of a, a the, the, this is the, the moment that everything's been building up to at this point. Uh, he let Haman bribe him to exterminate the Jews. And, and Esther has just at this moment outed herself. This was the moment where she publicly declared, I am of the people of God. Ultimately, he's responsible, but then like a, a true politician, he starts to think about how he could pass the blame, pass the buck, and, uh, and we'll come back to that. But then he's here, and, 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 and there's this. She does it. 
she finally puts herself all on the line. She finally decides to be counted with God's people no matter what the cost. It's as if she's saying, hey, uh, where's the list of all the Jewish people that are going to be set to be killed uh, on March 7th? You know, where's the list of everyone that that and the day is set where they're all going to die? Uh, let's go ahead and, and take a pen and paper and, and I'll just write my name on that list. She's identifying herself as one of God's God's people. And here's the thing. If you're in the family of God, with you're in a family with brothers and sisters, you're in a family, you're not in this personal relationship. Yes, there's a personal aspect of your relationship with God, but we we are never ever told in scripture that our faith is supposed to be just a personal thing between us and our father. It is never meant to be that way. In fact, uh, what we what we know about real life is if I'm in a family and I have brothers and sisters, well, I uh, at least when I'm in that household, I am uh, I'm in a relationship with everyone in the family. I can't I can't separate having a relationship with with only only my father. And it's the same way with God. When we enter into his kingdom, we're brought into his family and we have a relationship that's bigger than our relationship with our just our father. It's a relationship with all the people of God. We identify ourselves with all the people of God and we identify ourselves with God's kingdom. And we talk about God's kingdom quite a bit uh, in in church and we we talk about god's kingdom and we read about god's kingdom quite a bit in the scriptures now one of the interesting things is is that a lot of times i think people think of god's kingdom and they think of something very far away they think of something in eternity which there is a sense that the kingdom is still to come there, there is a sense to where in eternity we're going to experience what it means to fully be a part of god's kingdom and we're going to see all the benefits of it we're going to understand all the benefits of it but here's the thing god's kingdom has always had a place even in this world uh, in the in the old testament in the days of the hebrews in the days of the uh, patriarchs in the days of the prophets in the days of the kings god's kingdom has been his people the hebrew people in this world god's kingdom was the the jews and they were considered of the kingdom of god and then something changed when jesus came something changed in that the people of god are no longer a people just based on blood lines uh, but based on faith and and based on well it was still based on faith even before but the apostle paul will explain that in the book of romans he will say that even though there was uh there, there was those who were by blood uh, in the promise there were those who were by faith among those by blood who are a part of the promise so faith was still a big part of it but today god's kingdom and the place that we find god's kingdom it will be described as the church in the world the church is God's kingdom. The church is God's family. And today it's so much a part of, of almost a rebellious Christian subculture where people feel like they want to badmouth the church. Some people would say, well, I don't want to be a part of a church. I don't need a church. I don't want to be in a community of believers. I don't want to be the, under the authority of a church leadership or a pastor. Or, or I love this one. I don't, I, don't, I don't need to be a part of organ 
Christianized religion. Well, what religion, I always want to ask, uh, would you rather? Something very disorganized? Uh, and that's not the virgin, version, anyways, that God uh, paints. Uh, even better, I love this one. Uh, there are people out there that will say something like, well, I love Jesus, but I hate the church. Well, I have news for you. Those statements, they might sell books in the Christian community, and they might seem kind of edgy, which is what they're trying to do, uh, but they're not written by people who are living out a faith that the Bible paints. They're not, they're not being written by people who are living out a, a personal faith and a public faith, which is really, in the words of James, basically no faith at all. Jesus, by the way, is the one that started the church. He's the one that declared that his kingdom would be the church. He's the one that built his kingdom. He's the one that grows his kingdom. He's the one that is the head of the church, and he designed the church, and he organized the church. And, and when it says in Scripture that Jesus died uh, for us, it doesn't say that he died for me personally. No, it says that he died for the church, his bride. And uh, when it describes who his bride is. It describes the church. When it describes his love, it describes the church. The scripture says that he's the one that organizes the church. In fact, it says that he's a God of order, not of disorder, and that if we're going to be doing things the way God wants us to do them, we'll do them orderly. So uh, I'm sorry if you don't like organized religion. Uh, maybe it's not a, <laughs> that you really have faith. It's just that you want your own kind of of God, uh, and that's a whole different conversation. But Scripture says he's the one that organized it. He's the one that made it, and it says that he gave some to serve, some to lead, and some to play all kinds of different roles in his church. He loves the church. He cares for the church. He died for the church. He thinks the church is beautiful. He calls the church his bride, and there's a day coming where all of us who are a part of his church, who are a part of those people, who not only have personal faith but practice public faith will be with him in all eternity. And, and, and here's the thing. If you had people in your life who constantly said to you, I sure do hate your wife. I sure do hate your kids. I, 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 I love you, but, but I don't like the rest of your family. How long would your friendship last? How long would it be before you finally decided, this person doesn't really love me at all? Because they don't love the people I love. They don't love the people who are a, a part, a, a deep part of, of my life and my heart. And that's what, that's what those folks do with God when they say things like that. That's what those folks do when, when they say, God, I, I, I like you. I, I, Jesus, I like you, but I hate your children. Jesus, I like you, but I, I hate your kingdom. Jesus, I like you, but I, I hate your church. I hate your kids. I hate your wife. Well, how about we here at Vernonia Church and those of you who are joining me online, what if we just said, we're going to be different? We're going to live with a more eternal perspective. I'd like you to realize something, that an attack on God's people, an attack on God's church, 
Well, that's an attack and an affront to Jesus himself. When you identify with Jesus, that attack is an attack on you. He's the people are saying things like that, and they think they're they're being edgy Christians, and they're saying they're insulting you, they're insulting your family, they're 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 attacking you. Jesus did say that I've called you up out of this world, and the world will hate you. And we need to realize that sometimes even people who say they're in will act like the people of the world. And I want to encourage you, don't be one of those. Don't be someone who badmouths God and God's people and the church. Don't be someone who badmouths Jesus and, and badmouths other Christians. Here in Esther, Esther is realizing that living faithfully for God's will in this world means that sometimes you go ahead and you identify yourself with, with God's people. You identify yourself with them and you stand up for them and you decide that you're going to be numbered among them. And it's a privilege to be considered part of God's family. It's a privilege to be considered a part of his community. It's a privilege for me to say I am a part of Vernonia Church. Well, back to the text. Haman, as soon as he hears Esther do and say what she says, he, it says he grew pale with fright before the king and queen. The king jumped up all of his feet in a rage and he went out into the palace garden well we've read about the palace garden in chapter one we saw that it was a garden filled with jewels on the floor and golden couches and pillars of 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 stone and marble all throughout the garden maybe he went out to sit on one of his gold couches and to look at the gems on the floor and to think about how is he going to deal with this situation we're not told exactly what uh, created the rage but i have a couple ideas one is he's in this rage he's realizing he's in a predicament he can't just turn around and condemn haman without condemning himself for something an issue that he's decreed and he's got to try to figure this thing out how's he gonna deal with this and so rather than dealing with it right there and then he marched out to the garden to think well in despair it says as we pick up in verse 8 of chapter 7 in despair Haman fell on the couch where Queen Esther was reclining just as the king was returning from the palace garden and the king exclaimed will he even assault the queen right here in the palace before my eyes <laughs> well now the king just found his out he knew that Haman wasn't attacking the queen uh, he was I think just now using this as a perfect opportunity to get rid of Haman and to save his own face what did he do well Haman is begging and uh, it, it kind of sounds like he's climbing up from from Esther's feet up to her lap just begging her to show mercy and to do something about this situation the king walks back in from the garden sees what's happening and this is the perfect opportunity to go ahead and get rid of Haman and this is the perfect opportunity to undo what's been done and so it says as soon as the king spoke his attendants covered Haman's face signaling his doom then Harbona the king's eunuch said Haman has set up a sharpened pole that stands 75 feet tall in the courtyard remember that pull from 
the previous chapters? Uh, that pole was the pole that he planned on putting Mordecai, Esther's cousin, on. That that pole was the, the pole that uh, he had put up so he could kill Mordecai. Well, here, what goes around comes around, so to speak. Here again, we see not a coincidence or fate or karma. We see God's hand in action, and we see God's providence at work. And so we see it says he intended to use it to impale Mordecai, the man who saved the king from assassination. So here again, we have sort of a dig, right? And then uh, impale Haman on it, the king ordered. And so they impaled Haman on the pole that had been set up for Mordecai and the king's anger subsided. Well, we'll stop there in the story of Esther for today, but uh, it will stop with this great, wonderful, this beautiful picture, and I'm saying that all with sarcasm, a picture of a man filled with self-indulgence, filled with pride, filled with arrogance, filled with a desire for public praise, and now he's filled with a 75-foot pole. <laughs> I'm visual. I can't help but visualize what that must have looked like. And there are so many Proverbs that I can think of that come true with this passage, right? Proverbs 16, 14, it says, The anger of a king is a deadly threat, and the wise will appease it. In Proverbs 22, it says, The king's fury is like a roaring lion. To rouse his anger is to risk your life. And then we see other Proverbs, things like Proverbs 26, 27, that says, if a man digs a pit, he will fall into it. If you roll a boulder down on others, it will crush you instead. In Proverbs 21, 7, it says, The violence of the wicked will drag them away, for they refuse to do what is right. And again, here, we can't help but talk about the providence of God at work. God has set some things, some truths in motion in this world, and he makes sure that they, they, they come around. Uh, here, here it, it, his word comes true. His principles are displayed. Haman set up the 75-foot pole to kill one of God's people, and he ends up impaled on it himself. Jesus would teach us what we would call the law of sowing and reaping. He simply teaches us that you will reap what you sow. You sow unhappiness. You sow slander. You sow grumbling, you sow division in God's kingdom, guess what? You will reap misery and unhappiness and the consequences of mocking God in his church. In Galatians 6 verses 7 to, 10, uh, 7 to 10, the apostle Paul writes, don't be misled. You cannot mock the justice of God. You will always harvest what you plant, or in other words, you will always reap what you sow. And those who live to satisfy their own sinful nature will harvest decay and death and from that sinful nature. But those who live to please the Spirit will harvest everlasting life from the Spirit. Did you notice the difference there that the Apostle Paul was teaching? That those who live for this world, who live for sin and the sinful nature, well, they're going to reap what the world gives. And then the opposite of doing that is eternal life and living for eternal life, living for things that will go to eternity, things like the church, things like God's kingdom, uh, 
Things like worshiping God and going to church and serving in the church and living for the work of the church and and living for God's kingdom, they're all things that will actually be valuable in heaven. They're all things that we can actually take with us when we go there. Things like spiritual growth and living for God and obeying God and serving others in Jesus' name, those are all things that will go with us into eternity. And loving others in Jesus' name, leading others to come to know Christ, they're all things that have eternal value. And it's just the opposite of living for the things of this world that are temporary. What if, what if those people who are connected with Vernonia Church and even our online uh, Vernonia, Vernonia Church community what if we did things differently what what if we went ahead and lived as if we loved the eternal things what if we as god's people instead of joining the world's spiritual warfare against the church now we talked about russia and ukraine today and I mean, there's always been wars and rumors of wars. And in fact, Scripture says that when the end days come, there will be wars and rumors of wars. And by the way, one of the most common questions I've been asked is, is this evidence that, uh, that we're at the end of days? Well, you know, anytime there's a war and a rumor of war, the things that Jesus said would happen are happening. Uh, I don't think specifically that we could say because Russia is fighting with Ukraine that, that there's evidence of the end times. Jesus said no one knows when the end will come and, and we, it will all happen in the blink of an eye and it will happen and we won't expect it or suspect it. And uh, we just can't know these things. And I think what he said was there'll be wars and rumors of wars because there's always been wars and there's always been rumors of wars. And there were wars when those words were spoken and there were rumors of wars when those words were spoken. And, and even the apostles considered the end of days that all the things were in place during their lifetime that could have brought about Jesus returning. And I think partly what Jesus was saying when he said that is life is going to go on. The world is going to turn. The same things keep happening over and over and over again until the day that he returns. So no, I don't necessarily think that there's something extra biblical about Russia attacking Ukraine. I just think it's just evidence that we live in a broken world where powerful, power-hungry people do unjust things, and one day God will bring justice to those people. That's just something that I think has been going on ever since those words were spoken in scripture but they are a good picture for us of this battle we're in uh, russia attacking ukraine ukraine fighting um, and, and the truth is we're all always in this unseen spiritual battle for eternity that we are always being attacked by an enemy and we are always uh, defending and attacking and, and we are always in this war where we are trying to win people for Christ, where we are trying to help get a message out there so that people that God has chosen to pull out of this world and, and to bring them into his kingdom uh, would come into his kingdom. And what if instead of being people who are, who are joining the world's spiritual 
spiritual warfare against God and eternal things and his church? What if we stood with and were counted among those who actually love God's kingdom instead? What if we became people who said things like, I love Jesus and I love my church because really it's his church. What if we said things like, well, I, I love the people in my church, even when they make mistakes, even when I disagree with them, even when we have our, our little tiffs, even when they look at me funny, even when they don't call me when I think they should have, even when, you know, you fill in the blank. I know a lot of people have been hurt by a lot of people in the church, but what if we said, I love the people in my church anyways? What if you saw the church as a blessing in your life and a place and a people through whom God is ministering to you, challenging you and helping you grow what if we said that God has a vision for me and a place for me in his kingdom what if I said instead of living like others do in their churches who talk bad about them and decide to talk uh, I, I decide I'm going to talk only good about them I'm going to talk good about Jesus I'm going to talk good about Jesus church and, and I'm going to talk good about the people of the church what if we pray for the church encourage the church lift each other up in the church what if we support the church and talk up the church? What if we did uh, what Esther did and say, we're going to identify with the church. We're going to even, uh, we're going to even put ourselves on the line to make sure that this church becomes uh, a church, a place where the will of God is being, uh, is being uh, lifted up where the will of God is being fulfilled, where the word of God is being protected and shared. Uh, here's what that would look like. Jesus said, you will reap what you sow and you become an encourager. You become a, a lover of the church and eternal things. Guess what? You're going to be encouraged and you're going to be loved and you're going to be blessed and you're going to be ministered to and lifted up. You, you'll be living for something more permanent, something more eternal. Paul would build up off of his plea for us to live for eternal things with a conclusion to his thought. He will say this, that when we live for eternal things rather than the worldly things, he will say, so then, in verse, uh, in verse 9, he'll say, so then let's not get tired of doing what is good at just the right time we will reap a harvest of blessing if we don't give up therefore whenever we have the opportunity we should do good to everyone especially those in the family of faith and that's what living for eternity looks like because that will be something eternal that we can take with us because you become a family. You become co-heirs with Christ. You become citizens of a country, not a worldly kingdom, not a worldly country, but God's kingdom, his household, his church. And together we're living for and looking forward to eternity. In Ephesians 2, 19, it says, So now you are no longer strangers and foreigners. You are citizens along with all of God's holy people. You are members of God's family. Your father has brought you into his family, and, and he wants you to think of that as a privilege, not a burden. He wants you to think of that as an opportunity, not a struggle. 
And the way we live God's will out in our world, in a world that's rejected him, is we remember our citizenship. We live for and think about eternity over the temporary. Jesus teaches us that his kingdom isn't an earthly kingdom. He's pulled us out of this kingdom. Let's see the temporary of this world. But, and let's realize we, we do have to live in the temporary of this world. But never let's never forget the eternity behind it. There's something bigger, longer lasting, more important. Let's decide that we will live for eternity. And, and let's live for the things of God and be counted among the people of God. Well, I'd like to encourage you and pray for you right now as we finish up our teaching time here. Well, let's pray together and let's ask God to help us remember to live for eternity, to live a life that not only is represented by personal faith, but also public faith as we put the two together and we live we live a, a faith that will result in eternal life. Well, let's pray together. Father in heaven, we come before you and, and we ask that uh, you would help us to be able to see eternity over the temporary. We ask that you would help us to live for the things of God rather than the things of man. We ask that you would help us live for you and your kingdom. Help us to understand you in your kingdom. Help us to live for you in your kingdom. God, I pray that you will help us to become people who, who get excited about seeing the church grow, about seeing your kingdom come and your will being done on earth as it is in heaven. As we look forward to the day where we get to be with you in your kingdom in eternity, I pray that we will continue to work and practice living for you and for eternity here today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Everybody said together, amen. Well, once again, I want to say thank you for joining me as we've gone through our online teaching time together. I've been really enjoying going through Esther with you and uh, we're just having a great time. You know, Easter is coming up and I uh, want to invite all of you personally to come to Easter service. If you ha are able to, we would love to see you at one of our in-person Easter services at uh, nine o'clock or sorry, 9.30 and 11 o'clock uh, are when our two services are. They're both the identical services. You're more than welcome to come to one of them. I would love to see you, especially if you've never been to Vernonia Church before, but you've been joining us online, that would be a great time for you to come to an in-person service for the first time. Uh, if you're in a place where you can't make it, that's all right. We'll be still doing our online. I'm still going to record. We're still going to have an online service. We'll put it up at the same time we usually do. And so you'll still be able to join us there for that. Um, but I just want to make sure I threw that, uh, that, that, that invitation to you to come join us on Easter Sunday. Uh, I did mention that uh, those of you who, who are thinking about you'd like to give to help out the people in, um, in the Ukraine. Well, uh, and I mentioned that we support overseas outreach and through them we have connections that will get resources to the people who need the, the resources. If you wanted to do something like that, you can give to that. You can give and um, they're, they're at, you can go to www.vernonia.church at any time 
to give. But if you wanted to give specifically to something like that, we do have, there's an option there. When you click the Give tab, it opens up our Tithely account. And there should be a spot that where you can mark down that you want to uh, give to missions. So we, we might call it our Faith Promise Missions. Uh, and there should be a box there you could click to give to that. Or you can make a comment uh, that you would like it to go to uh, Ukraine. And we'll make sure it gets to our mission that we support overseas outreach. Uh, and if you'd like to give to support support what we're doing and, and do, do both or do one or the other, you're welcome to do that. Uh, you can do that at the same place, www.vernonia.church. Hit the give tab, follow uh, follow the buttons, and it'll open up uh, our Tithely account. You could set up giving there in any way, shape, or form that you want to. I do want to make sure that I say thank you to those of you who are giving uh, to Vernonia Church. Thank, thank, thank you to you because you uh, have 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 been making a difference. You have been uh, able to help us as we've continued to reach out and help people come to know Christ. As we've been uh, putting these messages out, as we've been reaching out to this community, we've been seeing our church grow. We've been seeing our in-person services grow, and uh, it, it's just been amazing. And you have been a part of that. So I want to say thank you to you and. Uh, and, and applaud you. So uh, let's go ahead and pray for the ministry of Vernonia Church. I specifically want to pray for our, our, our brothers and sisters in Christ who are part of the kingdom in Ukraine. Let's pray for their continued safety. Let's pray that uh, God's hand will, will reveal itself in many more ways throughout that, that struggle that they're in. Um, and let's pray that, that that, that God will help put an end to it, put a stop to it, and that he'll be glorified in the midst of it, uh, and that maybe people will come to know Christ because of it. Let's pray that, that God will bring something good into this, uh, this tragedy that's happening. So let's pray together. Father in heaven, we pray for the spiritual war we're all in. We pray that you will bring victory. We pray that you will um, see us declaring that we're we are a part of this. Um, we, are, we are numbered in your kingdom, and we are a part of this people that have been called out to be yours and to be among, among those who, who are counted as yours. And God, we want to see your kingdom grow. We want to see people come to know Christ. We, we know you've promised that the gates of hell wouldn't stand against your kingdom and wouldn't stand against your church and the message of your church. And in this war, in this battle, we want to continue sharing the message of Christ and sharing the message of salvation. And we pray that you will continue to use Vernonia Church to do that. Continue to use us, protect us, and help us as we go out onto the battlefield so to speak and we share with people and we invite people and and we watch as you do a work in this community and online god we also want to pray for the, our brothers and sisters in christ who are in a physical battle and physical wars we ask for you to put a hedge of protection around them we ask that you would uh, use them and their faith in the midst of the the battle uh, that that they might inspire others to come to know you and, and to come to know salvation, even in the midst of fighting for their lives and their homes and families. I pray that you will be with them. I pray that you'll protect them. I, I pray that you will, more than that, uh, help the gospel to spread because of them in the midst of it. 
And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Everybody said, Amen. Well, I'd like to finish up by declaring it's been a great day. And it has. I've really enjoyed my time with you today. Uh, let's go ahead on the count of three and uh, we'll we'll cry out or we'll shout out. It's been a great day. If you're in a place where you could join me, go ahead and do it. One, two, three. It's been a great day. I hope you have a great day and I'll see you on Sunday.